Section 14 of Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20, Section 14. As almost the whole maritime force of France was in the Mediterranean, and as it seemed likely that an attempt would be made on Barcelona in the following year, Russell received orders to winter at Cadiz. In October he sailed to that port, and there he employed himself in refitting his ships with an activity unintelligible to the Spanish functionaries, who calmly suffered the miserable remains of what had once been the greatest navy in the world to rot under their eyes. Along the eastern frontier of France the war during this year seemed to languish. In Piedmont and on the Rhine the most important events of the campaign were petty skirmishes and predatory incursions. Louis remained at Versailles and sent his son, the Dauphin, to represent him in the Netherlands. But the Dauphin was placed under the tutelage of Luxembourg and proved a most submissive pupil. During several months the hostile armies observed each other. The Allies made one bold push with the intention of carrying the war into the French territory, but Luxembourg, by a forced march which excited the admiration of persons versed in the military art, frustrated the design. William, on the other hand, succeeded in taking Huy, then a fortress of the third rank. No battle was fought, no important town was besieged, but the Confederates were satisfied with their campaign. Of the four previous years every one had been marked by some great disaster. In 1690 Waldeck had been defeated at Fleurus. In 1691 Mons had fallen. In 1692 Namur had been taken in sight of the Allied army, and this calamity had been speedily followed by the defeat of Steinkirk. In 1693 the Battle of Landen had been lost, and Charleroi had submitted to the conqueror. At length, in 1694, the tide had begun to turn. The French arms had made no progress. What had been gained by the Allies was indeed not much, but the smallest gain was welcome to those whom a long run of evil fortune had discouraged. In England the general opinion was that, notwithstanding the disaster in Camerate Bay, the war was on the whole proceeding satisfactorily both by land and by sea but some parts of the internal administration excited during this autumn much discontent. Since Trenchard had been appointed Secretary of State, the Jacobite agitators had found their situation much more unpleasant than before. Sidney had been too indulgent and too fond of pleasure to give them much trouble. Nottingham was a diligent and honest minister, but he was as high a Tory as a faithful subject of William and Mary could be. He loved and esteemed many of the non-jurors, and, though he might force himself to be severe when nothing but severity could save the state, he was not extreme to mark the transgressions of his old friends, nor did he encourage tale-bearers to come to Whitehall with reports of conspiracies. But. Trenchard was both an active public servant and an earnest Whig. Even if he had himself been inclined to leniency, he would have been urged to severity by those who surrounded him. 
He had constantly at his side Hugh Speke and Aaron Smith, men to whom a hunt after a Jacobite was the most exciting of all sports. The cry of the malcontents was that Nottingham had kept his bloodhounds in the leash, but that Trenchard had let them slip. Every honest gentleman who loved the Church and hated the Dutch went in danger of his life. There was a constant bustle at the secretary's office, a constant stream of informers going in and of messengers with warrants going out. It was said, too, that the warrants were often irregularly drawn, that they did not specify the person, that they did not specify the crime, and yet that, under the authority of such instruments as these, houses were entered, desks and cabinets searched, valuable papers carried away, and men of good birth and breeding flung into jail among felons. The minister and his agents answered that Westminster Hall was open, that if any man had been illegally imprisoned he had only to bring his action, that juries were quite sufficiently disposed to listen to any person who pretended to have been oppressed by cruel and griping men in power, and that, as none of the prisoners whose wrongs were so pathetically described had ventured to resort to this obvious and easy mode of attaining redress, it might fairly be inferred that nothing had been done which could not be justified. The clamour of the malcontents, however, made a considerable impression on the public mind, and at length a transaction in which Trenchard was more unlucky than culpable, brought on him and on the government with which he was connected much temporary obloquy. Among the informers who haunted his office was an Irish vagabond who had borne more than one name, and had professed more than one religion. He now called himself Taff. He had been a priest of the Roman Catholic Church, and secretary to Adder the Papal Nuncio, but had since the Revolution turned Protestant, had taken a wife, and had distinguished himself by his activity in discovering the concealed property of those Jesuits and Benedictines who, during the late reign, had been quartered in London. The ministers despised him, but they trusted him. They thought that he had, by his apostasy, and by the part which he had borne in the spoliation of the religious orders, cut himself off from all retreat, and that, having nothing but a halter to expect from King James, he must be true to King William. This man fell in with a Jacobite agent named Lunt, who had, since the Revolution, been repeatedly employed among the discontented gentry of Cheshire and Lancashire, and who had been privy to those plans of insurrection which had been disconcerted by the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, and by the Battle of La Hogue in 1692. Lunt had once been arrested on suspicion of treason, but had been discharged for want of legal proof of his guilt. He was a mere hireling, and was, without much difficulty, induced by Taff to turn a prover. The pair went to Trenchard. Lunt told his story, mentioned the names of some Cheshire and Lancashire squires to whom he had, as he affirmed, carried commissions from the Saint-Germain, and of others who had, to his knowledge, formed secret hordes of arms and ammunition. His simple oath would not have been sufficient to support a charge of high treason, but he produced another witness, whose evidence seemed to make the case complete. The narrative was plausible and coherent, and, indeed, 
though it may have been embellished by fictions, there can be little doubt that it was in substance true. Messengers and search-warrants were sent down to Lancashire. Aaron Smith himself went thither, and Taff went with him. The alarm had been given by some of the numerous traitors who ate the bread of William. Some of the accused persons had fled, and others had buried their sabres and muskets and burned their papers. Nevertheless, discoveries were made which confirmed Lunt's depositions. Behind the wainscot of the old mansion of one Roman Catholic family was discovered a commission signed by James. Another house, of which the master had absconded, was strictly searched, in spite of the solemn asseverations of his wife and his servants that no arms were concealed there. While the lady, with her hand on her heart, was protesting on her honour that her husband was falsely accused, the messengers observed that the back of the chimney did not seem to be firmly fixed. It was removed, and a heap of blades, such as were used by horse-soldiers, tumbled out. In one of the garrets was found, carefully bricked up, thirty saddles for troopers, as many breastplates, and sixty cavalry swords. Trenchard and Aaron Smith thought the case complete, and it was determined that those culprits who had been apprehended should be tried by a special commission. Taff now confidently expected to be recompensed for his services, but he found a cold reception at the Treasury. He had gone down to Lancashire chiefly in order that he might, under the protection of a search-warrant, pilfer trinkets and broad pieces from secret drawers. His sleight of hand, however, had not altogether escaped the observation of his companions. They discovered that he had made free with the communion plate of the Popish families whose private hoards he had assisted in ransacking. When, therefore, he applied for reward, he was dismissed, not merely with a refusal, but with a stern reprimand. He went away, mad with greediness and spite. There was yet one way in which he might obtain both money and revenge, and that way he took. He made overtures to the friends of the prisoners. He and he alone could undo what he had done, could save the accused from the gallows, could cover the accusers with infamy, could drive from office the secretary and the solicitor, who were the dread of all the friends of King James. Loathsome as Taff was to the Jacobites, his offer was not to be slighted. He received a sum in hand. He was assured that a comfortable annuity for life should be settled on him when the business was done, and he was sent down into the country and kept in strict seclusion against the day of trial. Meanwhile, unlicensed pamphlets, in which the Lancashire plot was classed with Oates's plot, with Dangerfield's plot, with Fuller's plot, with Young's plot, with Whitney's plot, were circulated all over the kingdom, and especially in the county which was to furnish the jury. Of these pamphlets, the longest, the ablest, and the bitterest, entitled A Letter to Secretary Trenchard, was commonly ascribed to Ferguson. It is not improbable that Ferguson may have furnished some of the materials, and may have conveyed the manuscript to the press, but many passages are written with an art and a vigour which assuredly did not belong to him. Those who judge by internal evidence may perhaps think that, in some parts of this remarkable tract, they can discern the last gleam of the malignant genius of Montgomery. A few weeks after the appearance of the letter he sank, unhonoured and unlamented, into the grave. 
There were then no printed newspapers except the London Gazette. But since the Revolution the newsletter had become a more important political engine than it had previously been. The newsletters of one writer named Dyer were widely circulated in manuscript. He affected to be a Tory and a High Churchman, and was consequently regarded by the fox-hunting lords of manners all over the kingdom as an oracle. He had already been twice in prison, but his gains had more than compensated for his sufferings, and he still persisted in seasoning his intelligence to suit the taste of the country gentleman. He now turned the Lancashire plot into ridicule declared that the guns which had been found were old fowling-pieces, that the saddles were meant only for hunting, and that the swords were rusty relics of Edge Hill and Marston Moor. The effect produced by all this invective and sarcasm on the public mind seems to have been great. Even at the Dutch embassy, where assuredly there was no leaning towards Jacobitism, there was a strong impression that it would be unwise to bring the prisoners to trial. In Lancashire and Cheshire the prevailing sentiments were pity for the accused and hatred of the prosecutors. The government, however, persevered. In October four judges went down to Manchester. At present the population of that town is made up of persons born in every part of the British Isles, and consequently has no especial sympathy with the landowners, the farmers, and the agricultural labourers of the neighbouring districts. But in the seventeenth century the Manchester man was a Lancashire man. His politics were those of his county. For the old cavalier families of his county he felt a great respect, and he was furious when he thought that some of the best blood of his county was about to be shed by a knot of round-head pettifoggers from London. Multitudes of people from the neighbouring villages filled the streets of the town, and saw with grief and indignation the array of drawn swords and loaded carbines which surrounded the culprits. Aaron Smith's arrangements do not seem to have been skilful. The chief counsel for the Crown was Sir William Williams, who, though now well stricken in years and possessed of a great estate, still continued to practice. One fault had thrown a dark shade over the latter part of his life. The recollection of that day on which he had stood up in Westminster Hall, amidst laughter and hooting, to defend the dispensing power and to attack the right of petition, had, ever since the Revolution, kept him back from honour. He was an angry and disappointed man, and was by no means disposed to incur unpopularity in the cause of a government to which he owed nothing, and from which he hoped nothing. Of the trial no detailed report has come down to us, but we have both a Whig narrative and a Jacobite narrative. It seems that the prisoners who were first arraigned did not sever in their challenges, and were consequently tried together. Williams examined, or rather cross-examined, his own witnesses with a severity which confused them. The crowd which filled the court laughed and clamoured. Lunt, in particular, became completely bewildered, mistook one person for another, and did not recover himself till the judges took him out of the hands of the counsel for the Crown. For some of the prisoners an alibi was set up. Evidence was also produced to show, what was undoubtedly quite true, that Lunt was a man of abandoned character. The result, however, seemed doubtful till, to the dismay of the prosecutors, Taff entered the box. He swore with unblushing forehead that the whole story of the plot was a circumstantial lie devised by himself and Lunt. Williams threw down his brief, and in truth a more honest advocate might well have done the same. 
The prisoners who were at the bar were instantly acquitted, and those who had not yet been tried were set at liberty. The witnesses for the prosecution were pelted out of Manchester. The clerk of the Crown narrowly escaped with his life, and the judges took their departure amidst hisses and execrations. A few days after the close of the trials at Manchester, William returned to England. On the 12th of November, only forty-eight hours after his arrival at Kensington, the Houses met. He congratulated them on the improved aspect of affairs. Both by land and by sea, the events of the year which was about to close had been, on the whole, favourable to the Allies. The French armies had made no progress, the French fleets had not ventured to show themselves. Nevertheless, a safe and honourable peace could be obtained only by a vigorous prosecution of the war, and the war could not be vigorously prosecuted without large supplies. William then reminded the Commons that the Act by which they had settled the tonnage and poundage on the Crown for four years was about to expire, and expressed his hope that it would be renewed. After the King had spoken, the Commons, for some reason which no writer has explained, adjourned for a week. Before they met again, an event took place which caused great sorrow at the palace, and through all the ranks of the Low Church party. Tillotson was taken suddenly ill while attending public worship in the chapel of Whitehall. Prompt remedies might, perhaps, have saved him, but he would not interrupt the prayers, and, before the service was over, his malady was beyond the reach of medicine. He was almost speechless. But his friends long remembered with pleasure a few broken ejaculations which showed that he enjoyed peace of mind to the last. He was buried in the church of St. Lawrence Jewry, near Guildhall. It was there that he had won his immense oratorical reputation. He had preached there during the thirty years which preceded his elevation to the throne of Canterbury. His eloquence had attracted to the heart of the city crowds of the learned and polite, from the inns of court and from the lordly mansions of St. James's and Soho. A considerable part of his congregation had generally consisted of young clergymen who came to learn the art of preaching at the feet of him who was universally considered as the first of preachers. To this church his remains were now carried through a mourning population. The hearse was followed by an endless train of splendid equipages from Lambeth through Southwark and over London Bridge. Burnet preached the funeral sermon. His kind and honest heart was overcome by so many tender recollections that, in the midst of his discourse, he paused and burst into tears, while a loud moan of sorrow rose from the whole auditory. The Queen could not speak of her favourite instructor without weeping. Even William was visibly moved. "'I have lost,' he said, "'the best friend that I ever had, and the best man that I ever knew.' The only Englishman who is mentioned with tenderness in any part of the great mass of letters which the King wrote to Heinsius is Tillotson. The Archbishop had left a widow. To her William granted a pension of four hundred a year, which he afterwards increased to six hundred. His anxiety that she should receive her income regularly and without stoppages was honourable to him. Every quarter-day he ordered the money without any deduction to be brought to himself, and immediately sent it to her. Tillotson had bequeathed to her no property except a great number of manuscript sermons.
Such was his fame among his contemporaries that those sermons were purchased by the booksellers for an almost incredible sum of two thousand five hundred guineas, equivalent in the wretched state in which the silver coin then was, to at least three thousand six hundred pounds. Such a price had never before been given in England for any copyright. About the same time Dryden, whose reputation was then in the zenith, received thirteen hundred pounds for his translation of all the works of Virgil, and was thought to have been splendidly remunerated. It was not easy to fill satisfactorily the high place which Tillotson had left vacant. Mary gave her voice for Stillingfleet, and pressed his claims as earnestly as she ever ventured to press anything. In abilities and attainments he had few superiors among the clergy, but, though he would probably have been considered as a low churchman by Jane and South, he was too high a churchman for William, and Tennyson was appointed. The new primate was not eminently distinguished by eloquence or learning, but he was honest, prudent, laborious, and benevolent. He had been a good rector of a large parish, and a good bishop of a large diocese. Detraction had not yet been busy with his name, and it might well be thought that a man of plain sense, moderation, and integrity was more likely than a man of brilliant genius and lofty spirit to succeed in the arduous task of quieting a discontented and distracted church. End of section 14